Anya Lumba is the Catherine Bryson Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. She received her bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Delhi, India, and her PhD from the University of Sussex, UK. Her scholarship and teaching are in the areas of early modern studies, post-colonial studies, histories of race and colonialism, feminist theory, and contemporary Indian society, often exploring the intersections between these fields. She was a Mellon Fellow at Stanford and has taught at the University of Natal Durban, South Africa, as well as at the School of Criticism and Theory at Karlskrona, Sweden. Her many publications include Gender, Race, Renaissance Drama, published in 1989 by Manchester University Press, Colonialism, Postcolonialism, published by Rutledge in 1998 and re-edited in 2005, and Shakespeare, Race, and Colonialism, published by Oxford University Press in 2002. Her co-edited volumes include Postcolonial Shakespeare's Rut Rutledge 1998, Postcolonial Studies and Beyond, Duke 2005, and Professor Lumba has also written extensively on early modern drama and culture, Shakespeare, modern performances and adaptations of Shakespeare, the women's movement, and feminist theory and politics. Professor Lumba's talk today is part of the Moments of Change lecture series. Her visit to Penn State is sponsored by the Institute for the Arts and Humanities with additional support from the Departments of uh, Comparative Literature, English and History, and from the University Libraries, for which we are very grateful. The title of her lecture today is Of Gifts, Ambassadors, and Copycats, Diplomacy, Trade, and Colonialism in Early Modern India. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. Uh, for some reason, uh, actually not for a surprising reason, I have long wanted to come to this campus and I've never made it. And I have had um, lots of friends through the years who have either studied here or taught here. And right now I have lots of friends at this campus. So it's really uh, wonderful to be here and I want to thank everybody, particularly at the Institute, but also everyone else for making um, this visit such a pleasure. I've been, you know, just having a wonderful time here uh, already. Um, so uh, I hope, you know, I should talk for about 40 minutes, maybe, for half an hour, 45 minutes. I'll, I'll try and, it's a lot of pictures, and if something goes wrong with the pictures, then um, extra five minutes can happen. So I said, <laughs> we must budget this. Uh, technology is not my forte. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, in early modern English contact with Ottoman Turkey and Mughal India, the persistent European dream of unequal gift exchange, I give you a glass bead and you give me a pearl worth half your tribe, turned into an endless nightmare. The English became gift givers in an attempt to secure trading privileges in the East but their pearls were treated as glass beads by S. Eastern emperors. Sir Thomas Rowe, officially an ambassador of King James I to the court of the Mughal Emperor, to the Mughal Emperor Jahangir at Agra, uh, 1615 to 1619. You know, I didn't know that my talk was going to fit in so perfectly into this moments of change periodization. This is a total um, coincidence. Um, so he was an ambassador 
sent by the king, but he was in fact employed by the East India Company to establish trade in the region. He reported that he, the gifts he had carried, including an expensive coach, were, and he writes, extremely despised by those who have seen them. Here are nothing esteemed but of the best sort, good cloth and fine rich pictures, they coming out of Italy, over land and from Ormus, so that they laugh at us for such as we bring. This coach was not used for nine months, during which time two even more opulent ones had been copied from it, and it was upgraded with cloth of gold and nails of silver. Thus the Mughals were simultaneously unimpressed by European artifacts and quick to demonstrate that they could replicate and improve upon them. If early modern scholarship once highlighted the asymmetry between literate and sophisticated Europeans and culturally and linguistically naked non-Europeans understood as natives of the colonized new world, more re recent revisionist scholarship had, has turned to Europe's eastern encounters to indicate almost the opposite scenario, one in which early modern Europe was desperate to enter a global economy centered in the East. The different dynamics of contact are at least partly captured through the nature and ideology of gift exchange in the two regions. If in the Atlantic, European cultural superiority was expressed by the gifting of little things in exchange for life-sustaining food and information, and the promise of wealth whose value it was presumed the natives could not understand, in the East, costly and often outlandish gifts were presented in the hope of tantalizing jaded royal palates and receiving trading privileges in return. It would, however, be a mistake to simply counterpose the two scenarios. At a local level, the same individuals could be involved in journeys to different parts of the world, and ideologically and practically, trade and colonialism were not entirely discrete practices. They're not now either. While 16th century European advocates of overseas trade invoked it, as indeed such advocates do now in our era of rampant globalization, as a relation of perfect reciprocity, neither in the 16th century nor today has global trade been established through simple mutuality. The relationship between trade and colonialism, moreover, is crucially complicated by the vexed question of cultural attitudes and ideologies or perhaps it is more accurate to suggest that the economic sphere is not independent of these issues. Several commentators have been at pains to delineate these very early years that were characterized, um, and William Dalrymple's work is sort of the popular end of the stick. Um, and he writes that um, these early years were characterized by an easy camaraderie between Europeans and natives, with the former taking to Indian clothes, manners, languages, and women. The suggestion is that during this time, social relations were simply free of the ideologies of difference that emerged in a colonial period. Indeed, they may be seen to be structured by a reverse asymmetry. Despite the fact that within a few generations, last, large parts of India would witness the ascendancy of the British, the Mughal emperor treated Ro as his inferior and his memoirs, the Tuzuk-e-Jahangiri, chronicle Persian missions and embassies from neighboring countries, but do not even mention Sir Thomas Rowe. 
However, despite being conscious of his status as a supplicant for trading privileges in India, Rose journals and letters, a major resource for the study of early English presence in India, are thick with references to English and Christian superiority that we associate with a later period. What explains this? Today, I want to discuss the exchanges of gifts and art between the English and the Mughal court during the embassy of Sir Thomas Rowe in order to draw attention to the complicated interconnections between insularity and exchange, difference and coexistence, trade and colonialism, individual actors and historical processes. The English were obsessed with the importance of the gifts at the Mughal court. William Hawkins, who accompanied the East India Company's third voyage to India after previous experiences in Turkey, thought he had mastered the semiotics of the Eastern gift. And he writes, by the gift you give him, the Indian emperor, he knoweth that you demand something of him. So after inquiry is made, if he seeth it convenient, he granteth it. In English writings, the insufficiency of English gifts becomes the occasion to lament the insatiable covetousness of barbarians. These are all quotes and I'm not going to spend time doing this. Uh, particularly of the overgrown elephant, Emperor Jahangir himself. Edward Terry, chaplain to Roe, described Jahangir's heart as so insatiable that it never knows when it has had enough being like a bottomless purse that can never be filled. Now, gift giving at the Mughal court was a crucial part of an elaborate system of patronage and power. It, offered the offer, uh, it involved the offering of presents from an inferior to a superior which showed humility and was frequently rejoined by the emperor or nawab through a return gift. Such exchanges of gift, as one commentator says, bound the persons of the supplicant and the padshah in a single relationship. Thus, Jahangir bestowed gifts upon Ro too, including a cloth of gold cloak of his own, once or twice worn. But Ro was not thrilled. He made reverence very unwillingly. He says himself in his diary, for although aware, and he writes, that it is here reputed the highest of favors to give a garment worn by a prince, aware too that in India the king's bounties are rather marks of honor than of profit, he refers to the fact that in, India, in England cast-off clothes of the nobility were suitable for the use of low-born actors. There, he says, a cloak like this would have well become the actor who represented Jahangir's ancestor Tamerlane. Since the Mughals traced their descent from Timur, Rose reference to Marlowe's play Tamerlane, which depicted the hero as a low-born upstart, served to downgrade the emperor. In 1614, James had sent a picture of Timur to Jahangir who doubted the English claim that it was a likeness taken at the time of Timur's conquest of the Turkish emperor Bayezid. And he writes in his memoirs, for the picture had no resemblance to any of his descendants, because after all, he was one of the descendants. At the court, the connection between Timur and the Mughals was emphasized as in this picture, which shows the Mongol king surrounded by his descendants, including 
Jahangir himself. And Jahangir is on uh, the bottom right in the green dress. On the other hand, contemporary English uh, uh, books such as Richard Knowles' History of the Turks portrayed Timur as a version of an English gentleman. Indeed, until recently, this picture was assumed to be a likeness of the actor Edwell Allen in the title role of Marlowe's play. However, the English and the Mughals also shared something with respect to the story of the Turkish Emperor Bayezid's humiliation by Timur, since both were inclined to view the Turks with suspicion as well as admiration. Marlowe's play graphically represented the scene of Bayezid being caged by Timur, as did a Mughal artist in this picture I have reproduced here. Rowe's position as an ambassador of the king, but one who was financed, paid and instructed by the East India Company was an awkward one. Rowe describes how the Mughals objected to the fact that the paltry English gifts had been listed in an official letter from King James. He writes, if they, if these gifts had not been named as if from a monarch, it had been less despisable. The emperor was also annoyed, that is Jahangir was annoyed that James inscribed his own name before Jahangir's and irritated by James's suggestion that quote, honor and profit should arise to this prince by the English or their trade, which he so much despiseth to hear of that he will willingly be rid of it and us if he darest. I'll come back to this if he darest. In a letter to King James, Roe confessed that he had sought to maintain upright your majesty's greatness and dignity and withal to effect the ends of the merchant. But these two sometimes cross one another, seeing that there is no way to treat with so monstrous overweening that acknowledges no equal. To article on even terms, Jahangir avoids and holds me to his own customs of government by new firmans upon new occasions in which he is just and gracious. Now what's happening here? Roe is aware that judged by his own customs, Jahangir is entirely just and gracious. At the same time, he needs to translate his efforts and his failure into a different language comprehensible to the company and the Jacobian court. It is a measure of the distance between these two sets of ethics and expectations that Roe does not translate the word farman into English. A Mughal farman was a royal favor, not a reciprocal arrangement or a business transaction, even if it had been granted through a process of gift giving and taking. Nor was it a legal document in the English sense. It could not be possessed as property and um, it was the rights given in it were not uh, alienable, but they carried the aura of authority. Now, lots of commentators have talked about how in the 18th century, the East India Company simply used these farmans as if they were legal. Uh, but I'm interested in this earlier period where they didn't have the power to really uh, flout. In an influ influential essay, which many of you here I know would have read, Bernard Cohn analyzes the different set of expectations and beliefs with which the English and the Mughals saw each other, concluding that Europeans of the 17th century lived in a world of signs and correspondences, 
whereas Indians lived in a world of substances. Rowe interpreted the court ritual of the Mughals in which he was required to participate as a sign of debasement rather than an act of incorporation in a substantive fashion. The British in 17th century India operated on the idea that everything and everyone had a price. They never seemed to realize that certain kinds of cloth and jewels, uh, sorry, cloth and clothes, jewels, arms, and animals had values that were not established um, in terms of a market determined price, but were objects in a culturally constructed system. Cohn's suggestion here is that the Mughals were part of a symbolic system in which the materiality of the symbol, in this case the gifts, had not been transcended, whereas the Europeans lived in a world where material objects had become commodities and thus had exchange value only. I'm going to argue today that this opposition, and um, there, is, there are a couple of others who have done this, um, but um, I'm going to <coughs> differ from them too. But anyway, this opposition oversimplifies Mughal India and Jacobian England in each of which clothes, pictures, and other substances, including gifts, were invested with a symbolic value. How could they not be? Uh, although the precise meaning of the symbols were different. While it is true that the exchange of gifts between Ro and Jahangir was fraught with tension between two cultural codes, William Pinch, the historian, rightly comments that Ro quickly perceived the significance of Jahangir's gifts to him as, and Pinch writes, he himself inhabited a ritual political world. He was invested already ritually and emotionally in the English court and its European connections. Enmeshing himself in the ritual web of the Mughal court would have meant for Roe compromising or at the very least blunting these earlier meanings. While the English repeatedly complained that the gifts demanded by the Indian royalty were in reality bribes, the distinction between gift and bribe was equally murky at home. In the increasingly corrupt Stuart court and where too the line between gifts and bribes had become difficult to draw. Cohn's, Cohn argues that the Indians wanted gold, silver, copper and by the way this is really interesting for theories of globalization because all the gold was flowing that way then. Um, and Cohn argues that they wanted gold and not the curiosities that the Europeans gave them but I found the exact opposite in the material and Roe suggests the exact opposite reporting that Jahangir was thrilled with crafted cunningly wrought presents representing labor and skill such as quote a little box of crystal made by art like a ruby and cut into the stone in curious works which was all enameled and inlaid with fine gold. Jahangir's desire for English horses and other live animals as well as his appetite for curiosities and paintings testifies to shared codes of luxury across the imperial regimes of Europe and Asia. But within this sharing, we also detect a tension because these objects were part of another exchange desired only by the English. Rowe's attempt to secure a more formal and authentic confirmation, as he calls it, of trade-link privileges uh, um, confirms that he and the East India Company understood, they grasped the difference between a farman and a more formal document. 
that the company subsequently operated as if there was not a different was not a matter of cultural ignorance. Cohen's formulations invoke the binaries that have emerged in the vast anthropological literature on gift giving, which following Marcel Mauss's influential work, suggested that archaic societies, usually understood as both pre-modern and non-European, were organized around the personalized exchange of gifts, in contrast to modern monetary and usually capitalist and European forms of impersonal commerce between strangers. These oppositions have now been widely critiqued because they relegate both pre-modern and non-European or colonized societies to the archaic and also because they overlook the overlaps between the moral, symbolic and practical economy of gifts and commercial exchange. Gift exchange can be a form of promoting self-interest and gain and gifts as much as trade can be exchanged in the hope of profit. The English assume that the Eastern monarchs live in a gift economy where no one will want to or be able to do the same arithmetic as the English and will thus offer large returns larger than the value of the gifts they receive or rather that they will return the noble gift with ordinary commerce. Already it is supposed or hoped that non-Europeans live in a society whose codes can be played upon by Europeans but not vice versa. Thus, they accuse the Indians of violating the rules of the gift economy, of being greedy or inhospitable and of offering the wrong gifts in exchange. The notion that the West was avant-garde in developing markets, trade, early capital, in short what is understood as modernity has been widely questioned. The differences between the commercial culture of Mughal India and Jacobian England cannot be understood in terms of the former being economically more backward than the latter. Rather, it's in a sense the very coevalness of the two worlds that exacerbates the distance between the two. The Mughals were more than capable of doing the same sums in the, that, as the English and calculating that English gifts simply didn't add up to the value of trading privileges. Unfortunately, now I come to the fun part, of the talk, Jahangir's own view of English gifts is not to be found in his writings. Rose Journal tells us that paintings were the gifts he desired most. The medium by which he expressed both his admiration of Europe and his superiority over it. European pictures were first carried to India by three Jesuit missions to the Mughal court with hopes of converting the king and his followers. The Mughals proved extraordinarily resistant to conversion, but their tolerance of and flirtations with Christianity resulted in an appropriation of European art for their own theological, artistic and political projects. Indeed, as one commentator puts it, Mughal art represents the most extensive non-European experimentation with European and especially Christian art anywhere in the pre-industrial world. When I started working on this, I realized almost every painting that I look at is born out of uh, this kind of encounter. You know, first I was to get very excited when I saw a, a single painting. Then I realized the more you look, the more there are. It's actually a bit terrifying. So this picture um, is one of those uh, Mughal paintings, uh, one of those coffee cats. Um, this experimentation registers the Mughal encounter with the English in a way that the written records simply do not. 
confirming paradoxically the marginality of Europe to the Mughal conception of the world and reversing the asymmetries that are seen to accompany non-European attempts to master European cultural production during the later colonial period. The religious, and for some of you, you will know this, and art historians have worked extensively on this, but they haven't drawn the conclusions that I am from this. The religious idiosyncrasies of Jahangir's father, Akbar, had fanned the hopes of the Jesuits that he would convert to Christianity. Akbar had experimented with the idea of a syncretic religion, appointing himself religious as well as secular head of state, and finally promulgating dine ilahi or divine faith, which combined Hindu and Muslim practices with elements of Sufism and Mongol ancestor worship. Such syncretism was shaped in partly by Akbar's own efforts at imperial expansion and the need to consolidate diverse linguistic, ethnic, and religious groups. The Jesuits had brought engravings and illustrated books, including, I have slides of all of them, but I didn't uh, bring them because it takes very long to show them, but famous, um, you know, Durer's Small Passion and Virgin and Child, Christopher Plantin's recently printed Royal Polygot Bible, Abraham Ortelius's Atlas, the first big atlas, Theatrum Orbis Terrarum, all of these were carried by the Jesuits. And the Jesuits had feared that what would happen there is that the Mus Mughals would repudiate this because of the, Mus uh, the Islamic prohibition on depicting human beings. But in fact, that didn't happen for history that we can talk about in conversation, but I <coughs> won't talk about now. Uh, according to the, one of the Jesuit fathers, Monserrate, Akbar's court was enthralled by the displays organized by the fathers at Christmas. He narrates the story of a nobleman at the court who displayed a picture of the virgin which had been gifted to the king, draping it with rich hangings and placing it at the side of the audience chamber where the king himself showed himself to the people. So you have a chamber where the king shows himself and on the side you have the virgin shown to the people. And the art historian Eva Koch speculates that this display generated a new iconographic tradition for the representation of Mughal emperors, the emperor in the company of Christian pictures. And you'll recognize anybody who's seen Mughal art, it's all over. So in this you can see Jahangir holding a picture of Mary. It's interesting that Jahangir's mother is called Mary, Maryam. And um, so is um, Shah Jahan's uh, mother, so the Maryam and Mary, and we can think about many reasons why uh, the Christianity could be adopted this way. Uh, Koch concludes that the Jesuit priests had taken along the means, the pictures as a means to make the emperor perceive the realities of the Christian faith and to bring about the conversion of, uh, to Christ. The Mughals accepted the means eagerly but use them as vehicles to represent the reality and glory of their own dynasty and rule. Thus, Christian images and European techniques became an integral part of Mughal self-representation. Artists demonstrated their ability both to copy closely as well as to infuse the Christian figures with a different spirit or to place them in Indian settings. The painter Baswan was intrigued by the images of women, while Kesudas was most interested in the musculature of the body. Thus, a Hindu himself was the first 
to paint Christ's crucifixion. I haven't got that here, but uh, this is a, a copy of the Entombment of Christ. And by the way, these were just lying in the Philadelphia Free Library, uh, many of them. And the uh, guy, uh, the uh, curator told me that some of them have never been seen. They're just huge portfolios. Um, when somebody looked at them and he said, are oh, you interested in this? I said, this is a famous painting. So I said, I'm looking for that. He said, I have about 100 which are similar. So I'm just, it's just unbelievable. Why did the Mughals find Christian imagery so useful or inspiring? Such images were not entirely foreign to the Indo-Islamic tradition. Jesus and Mary, especially the nativity, feature frequently in Islamic theology and literature, which however disputes that Christ died on the cross, an event that Mughal pictures do depict, um, uh, as can be uh, seen from, um, well, I have a figure of that, there are lots of paintings. William Hawkins describes how Jahangir had pictures of Our Lady and Christ engraved in stone at one end of his prayer room. And as I've already mentioned, the mothers of both Akbar and Jahangir, sorry, not Jahangir and Shah Jahan, were called Maryam. And the pairing of the virgin with the king could be suggestive in multiple ways, claiming a divine lineage and messianic stature for the king. As Govin Alexander Bailey, a fantastic, fantastic art historian who's worked actually on work in the Christian missions everywhere, so not just India, but also Latin America and elsewhere, a fantastic guy, get him here, was less threatening to the, he says it was less threatening to the Mughals than to the Ottomans, because in a way, what happened in the, uh, in the Ottoman uh, court was that it was too contiguous. And uh, it's the, so, you, you know, as Lisa Jardine and Jerry Broughton say, you can see in European pictures the uh, Islam and Christianity offer battling it out almost. Um, but what we can see in Mughal India that the two religions are so asymmetrical that Christianity could simply be appropriated to the extent that the Muslim viewer can identify with the Christian subject. But even in this picture, it's a really strange picture of a Christian knight fighting with a Saracen foot soldier. So I think it has to be depicting the Crusades, where one would expect such an identification to be strained by a reference to a long history of Muslim Christian strife. The Christian soldier on the horse is painted with Central Asian features. So i.e. they are identifying with the Christian soldier there. With the advent of trading companies, secular pictures from Holland and England became increasingly popular in India. Even the Persian ambassador, according to Rowe, presented Jahangir with European pictures. Jahangir boasted that he could identify the painter of any work, and he writes in his memoirs, if there be a picture containing many portraits, and each work be the face of a different master, I can discover which face is the work of each of them. If any person has put in the eye and eyebrow of the face, I can perceive whose work the original face is and who has painted the eye and eyebrow. Less interested in religious experimentation with, uh, than his father, he commanded portraits which employed European devices such as globes, hourglasses, halos and angels to proclaim royal authority. In this famous picture, Jahangir preferring Sufi sheikh to kings, painted by Bichitra, and it's interesting that many of these artists are Hindu, 
He is shown sitting on an hourglass framed by a halo, presenting his memoirs to a Sufi saint and ignoring the Turkish emperor and James I. So you can see James I at the bottom. This picture of James I was copied from a portrait by John Decret, sergeant painter at the uh, English court who would have supplied royal portraits sent as diplomatic gifts. Ordinary Europeans too, oh sorry, now it's gone into the spin mode. Uh, we'll have to just wait. I have, uh, I'll keep talking uh, so it's not to waste time while this does its little spin. Uh, but what I'm going to show you, it's, see, that's, I was told not to do double clicks, but I did. Um, so uh, ordinary Europeans too were often copied from pictures and uh, you can see this is a portrait of a European. And by the way, I mean as South Asianists have commented, Europeans are often known as hat men by the, um, eventually English portraits and especially miniatures became central to Mughal experimentation with European art. In Rose narrative, the allure of art and female beauty become intricately connected. Late one night in September 1616, he writes, the emperor sent for me, demanding a picture. You know, he keeps sniffing it out. He said, you have a pearl that you haven't shown me. You've got something there that, you know, and Roe is always talking about how he's trying to hide things and, you know, the king is wanting them. So he says, he demanded a picture that he had not shown and asking that, and I'm quoting from Roe, if I would not give it to him. Um, There's a long exchange. And then he says, finally, actually, I won't read it in that English. It's a little more stilted. I'll just, he says, okay, if you won't give it to me, I'll just borrow it from you and have copies made for my wives. I replied that I esteemed it more than anything I possessed because it was the image of one I loved dearly and could never recover. He replied that if I would give it to him, he would better esteem it than the richest jewel in his house. He confessed he had never saw so much art, so much beauty and conjured me to tell him truly whether ever such a woman lived. Rose modern editor William Foster speculated that this was a picture of Rose's wife whose existence he had kept secret. Jahangir assures Rowe that he would uh, only, he wouldn't keep it but only take copies and with his own hand he would return it and his wives should wear it for indeed in that art of limning his painters work miracles. On an earlier occasion too, Jahangir had asked his chief painter to duplicate a small miniature of a woman painted by the famous English miniaturist Isaac Oliver. Later, the king triumphantly showed me six pictures, five made by his men, all pasted on one table, so like that I was by candlelight troubled to discern which was which, I confess beyond all expectation. And Jahangir laughs and he says, you need to reward the painter. And then he says, you take one of the copies home to show in England that we are not so unskillful as you esteem us. Next year, another painting became the occasion for sharper contention. Examining a picture, how am I doing for time? Uh, it's not much. Um, 
Examining a picture of Venus and a satire, Jahangir asked the newly arrived chaplain, Edward Terry, what he made of the painting. Annoyed by Terry's plea of ignorance, the king demanded to know, quote, why he brought up to him an invention of which he was ignorant. Rowe says his report, he Rowe writes a report of the incident uh, to the company and says that it should serve as a warning to the East India Company, quote, to be very wary what they may send may be subject to ill interpretation. I suppose he continues that the king understood the moral to be scorn of Asiatics whom the naked satire represented and was of the same complexion and not unlike, who being held by Venus, a white woman by the nose, it seemed that she led him captive. Now in Rowe's version of things, Jahangir is ever sensitive to being thought of as provincial, commenting on some small figurines that were sent to show Jahangir the forms of certain beasts with us. Jahangir replied, do you think in England that a horse and a bull is strange to me? Now, reading all this, you wonder, did the Mughal king even register the English scorn of Asiatics, let alone be driven to respond to it? Or was it Roe who fabricated narratives where the powerful Mughals become provincial and marginal to the English world? In Mughal India, I have been suggesting, European pictures, including representations of women, became the grounds for contestation and exchange between men. Jahangir repeatedly claimed that he wanted English miniatures not for himself, but in to show his ladies to take copies so that his wives would wear them. He also wanted English hats because his wives found them attractive. This might have especially irked Joe, uh, Roe, who, I made him into a Joe, uh, who resented the power of Jahangir's best beloved wife, Noor Jahan, writing that the king is directed by a woman and is now, as it were, shut up by her so that all justice and care of anything or public affairs either sleeps or depends on her, who is more inaccessible than any goddess or mystery of heathen impiety. Roe even held Noor Jahan responsible for the lack of English success in setting up their eastern trade. Indeed, Noor Jahan, I mean, she did have more than symbolic power. Coins were minted in her name. She was influential in the making of royal policy. And like other wealthy royal women, she had active trading interests. The English quickly realized the importance of pleasing her. So William Hawkins had reported sending his broker for jewels for Noor Jahan shortly after her marriage to Jahangir. Many years later, Roe also attempted to bribe her with pearls, which he asked the company to send him secretly sewn in cloth so that they would escape the notice of custom officials. The strategy appeared to have worked for Asaf Khan, the queen's brother and Jahangir's minister told Roe that the queen had desired to be our protectoress. Did Noor Jahan ever wear the 29 and a half carat pearl shaped like a pear, very large, beautiful and orient, or the four strings of pearls that were sent to her? In an exceedingly opulent court, perhaps English pearls were unlikely to be remarkable, but were she or other royal women attracted to the miniatures Jahangir had copied for them? In many of her portraits, 
Jahangir wears, uh, sorry, Noor Jahan wears diaphanous clothing that no painter would have been allowed to see her in, reminding us that these pictures were painted for the emperor's pleasure and rarely, if ever, from life. But female jewelry of the time, um, not only this, but such as, um, I mustn't click again, you'll see in the next picture, um, <clears throat> the pendant worn by the princess Badi al Jamal could easily have accommodated such miniatures. Um, that one. Uh, in English, uh, in England at this time, cosmetics were largely made from imported ingredients, and moralists lamented that English fashions uh, aped foreign practices and were in danger of corrupting English identity. I mean, it's really interesting what goes on there, but I'm not going to go there. But cosmetics and fashions must have traveled in more than one direction. As European paintings became a staple of overseas trade, they also exported images of beauty and fashion. I mean, we know the exchanges in Turkey. We know the exchanges between Elizabeth and sultanas in Turkey of towels and coal and makeup. Uh, but European luxury goods, especially European hats, were popular in the Zanana a fact that Roe was aware of. The images of European women and their clothing must have also reached them through Mughal copies of Western paintings, such as uh, this picture, a European lady, all Mughal painting, seated by a cabinet wearing a long gold dress with a blue collar, and another of um, <clears throat> Uh, with a red feather in her hair and a pendant with a pearl in it, which show careful attention to details of female toilet. Such portraits can also be seen to influence Mughal depictions of Indian women, such as this bust of a lady holding a tambura, wearing a lavender brocade dress with an orange mantle draped over her shoulders and head, so that I think it resembles a hat. Finally, Mughal women also tried their own hand at appropriating European art. Two European engravings, colored and signed by one Nadira Banu, have survived. They are in Tehran, so I haven't got them. Nadira was guided by the Jesuits resident at the court and mentions a father, Aqua Rizi, as her instructor. Another woman we don't know much about who signs herself Nini. This is the picture colored a copy of Jerome Wyrex's The Martyrdom of St. Cecilia. Not surprisingly, however, it is men who remain at the center of artistic exchange in Mughal India. Not Noor Jahan, but Jahangir himself is depicted in a later painting wearing a pendant like the one Ro describes. The emperor offered Ro a portrait of himself in exchange and Roe comments, and I'm ending just in a minute, you may now judge the king's liberality. This gift was not worth 30 pounds, yet it was five times as good as any he gives in kind. This last remark makes it clear that although Roe was perfectly clear about the symbolic value of the emperor's king gift, he also knew that such symbolic incorporations into the Mughal hierarchy could not bring the English closer to their aim of establishing a trade circuit that would be controlled by their own rules of exchange. 
back in England, Edward Terry's account of his Indian journey was published by Samuel Purchas, along with a picture of Jahangir, his son Khurram, and a female slave under the caption, pictures of the Indian copies made by the Mughal painter, Mughal's painter, probably copied from several rather than a single Mughal miniature. This in picture also reproduces an inscription on the bottom that may be in Jahangir's own hand, which suggests that the miniature was executed by the famous artist Manohar. Thus, an English picture of James carried by Rowe was reproduced by the Mughal painters and Jahangir's picture carried back by Rowe was copied by an English engraver. The exchanges I have discussed to conclude suggest the difficulties, the hesitations, the asymmetries, in brief the conversations that marked the early years of the English encounter with India. William Pinch is right that the English emissary and the Indian emperor, he says, were measuring each other using their languages of art appreciation in ways they could not in either of their spoken languages but concludes somewhat too easily that there was a mutual understanding between the emperor and ambassador, which was, he says, the outcome of proximity, fueled by basic human curiosity, and achieved by the means of fortuitous cultural convergences. But I argue that the entire embassy of Sir Thomas Rowe, including the final exchange of portraits, tells us that reciprocity is embedded within larger negotiations and tensions, an exchange whose terms are not entirely controlled or understood by individual participants. On the Mughal side, the exchange confirms both an interest, uh, interest in Europe and an indifference to it. While Mughal attitudes were commensurate with their power, from the vantage point of hindsight, they were a huge blunder in a few years. The Mughal dynasty was going to be finished. On the English side, Rowe's journals register the need to master the codes of the Mughal court, but in his letters back to England, we hear a different language as he translates his experience both for the company and the monarch. If he was conscious, okay, if he was conscious of the marginality of the English in India, he nevertheless reproduced the rhetoric of English global superiority, writing to James that he would teach the Mughals to know your majesty is the lord of all seas and can compel that by your power which you have sought with courtesy, which this emperor cannot yet see for his swelling. Even as they insisted on a global power they did not have, many of Rowe's contemporaries advanced the idea in literature, in pamphlets, in letters, that it was the English who were exporting fair trade overseas. At a more obviously imperial moment, John Dyer's poem, The Fleece, was to make the same point by returning to the embassy of Sir Thomas Rowe. The glossy fleeces now of pride and esteem, soft Asia boasts, where lovely Kashmir within a lofty mound of circling hills spreads her delicious stores a region termed the paradise of Indus. Next, the plains of Lahore, by that arbor stretched immense through many a realm to Agra, the proud throne of India's worshipped prince, whose lust is law. Remote dominions, nor to ancient fame, nor modern known, 
till public hearted row, faithful, sagacious, active, patient, brave, led to their distant climes, adventurous trade. Thank you. That's true. That's true. But um, luckily, what's happened in, uh, I mean, I wrote this for very much an early modern, people working in early modern English studies. And luckily, the debate there hasn't, you know, either ignored the economic dimension or actually, um, they've, they've been very critical of Mao's. But, um, and I, did, I cut out that long section where I do deal with people who engage with Mao's in the early modern English encounter. But there the argument seems to be often that in early modern England, you can see coexistence of two modes because it's a society that is still in transition, moments of transition. So you have an older model of gift giving with a newer model and in fact, Often this coexistence is illustrated with attempt to east with with, uh, the, uh, with what was going on in the east. So a critic called Barbara Sebek looks at that and says, "Look what's happening here. It's both those uh, codes." But I think that what they what she overlooks is the sort of palpable tension between these two codes. It's it's almost as if it coexistence can simply mean um, a smooth transition which is what I was very keen to, uh, to contest. But also, you know, not reify cultural difference, but pay attention to the politics of cultural difference. Often it isn't cultural difference so much as a contested terrain. And I think that's salutary for our own world. What we call cultural difference is often disagreement about, I don't know, oil. <laughs> so there is that. Okay, I mean, I've been, we're all, many of us have been totally preoccupied with this, partly because when we hear this, that the English were, see, the story of the belated English has become so much written into the narrative of early modern studies that you hear this as an argument against understanding race or colonialism or anything structural. Um, and I think that if you, any of us read anything, you can see that language. You know, it's, it's like pervasive. So one argument advanced by Nabil Matar was that, oh, it's only there in theological texts and in literature. He made this argument, which is actually absolutely patently false. You know, you can see it in the letters, you can see it in documents. In fact, that documentary companion, you can see it everywhere. So that, okay. So that doesn't work. Then he argued that it comes from the new world, that you're superimposing uh, certain codes from the new world onto the old world. Um, which is patently ridiculous because he says there was no problem with Islam. My reading is that the, that is because early modernists behave as if they inaugurate the world. If you go to the medieval encounter, there are long histories. Every single medieval text is deeply inscribed with the language, with the tropes, with the images, and even the form, literary forms that are being reproduced in the Renaissance. So in another piece that I've written, I've traced the form of the early modern romance from Arab literature. It's the whole Byzantine Arab encounter. They're mirroring each other. It's a whole love-hate thing, which that 
then gets translated. So the romance, and I'm taking my cue from somebody like Margaret Ann Doody's work on the novel, that you really have to look differently. We have been taught to think about romance in such narrow ways that we simply don't go there. And then, of course, the part of the problem is the very construction of the early Renaissance, where you, re you obliterate the medieval, uh, so the whole Dark Ages business, whereas the pre-modern cosmopolitan is something that we have to inscribe. The, and I'm not saying cosmopolitan uh, with sort of uh, bated breath. I mean, it's cosmopolitanism in which you see the birth of racial ideologies as well. Where did the English, where did Europeans get the idea that you should not enslave somebody of your own kind? They got it from the Arabs. Where did they get the story of Ham and Cham's, you know, son? It's shared by commentators across Jewish, Arab, and uh, Christian texts. So we, we cannot understand some of this if we really go on saying, but they are belated. So the argument also, which we might learn from complete, is that the more, the more provincial you are, the more you have to read other people's texts. Everything that the English are reading at this time is translated. Their Portuguese texts, their Spanish texts, their Latin texts, which are being transformed. You know? So I'm not calling it just false ideology, but I'm saying that they also have stakes. So the idea that the British uh, only enter the slaving uh, you know, in 1550 is also being revised. Gustav Ungerer has argued that English had material interest in the slave trade in Iberia, the English merchants stationed there. So, you know, um, I think we have to pause a little bit and, th you know, think about this moment. They, they're enslaving, I mean, the Irish experience is there already, which of course everybody readily grants. But even in the new world, you know, I mean, if you were to think of what goes on in the documents there, now, where does it come from is a you know, classical question of how do we do work on ideologies. And that's the whole problem with thinking about race. When people say oh, it only happened post-colonialism, that is not true. Every last little bit about uh, blackness is right there in medieval texts. You know, except in medieval texts, people can change color. Black and white people can marry each other and produce dappled babies, as in the fantastic German romance Parzival. That stops. That stops. The notion of miscegenation now comes in in a way that you didn't see it earlier. You know. So I mean, I'm just saying that this is such a big question. I'm only speculating. And I'm a literary critic, finally, even though I think about economics a lot. And the literature tells me that there is these forms of exchange going on back into the medieval. You can trace it, you know. So I think maybe economic historians need to catch up with some of the things, some of the evidence that is there in the literature, you know. Um, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely important. And I'm very wary, actually, of um, extrapolating large things from this material. Because, as you know, uh, Lisa Jardine and Jerry Broughton's very influential work, The Renaissance Bazaar, and uh, What Other um, Worldly Goods, and so on, uh, <clears throat> uh, seeks to redress the idea of cultural difference by looking at luxury, shared, shared codes of luxury, and trade in luxury goods. And from that, they conclude that 
the East and the West were looking at each other totally pragmatically and they were totally equal. And I find that very problematic because you've looked at elite exchange. And through that, you know, you've come to a whole big cultural statement which is too big. So I'm not making that claim from this material, you know, at all. And um, these are um, class societies deeply, deeply stratified. Um, and a history, a, you know, sort of a history of objects and following one single object through might actually be very interesting. Um, mirrors, earrings, you know, and things that might have circulated differently from tapestries and paintings, which is what they worked on and which is what this work too is. So it's not enough. So luxury and the idea of luxury percolating downward might actually give us some clue about um, whether, I mean, we know that there are trade in luxury items in Asia. I mean, China and India, I mean, that's a whole global system and there's a lot of stuff happening there. But to chart it this way um, is a little harder for Mughal India. I mean, you know, it's not harder after 1640. The problem is I'm obsessed with doing it in this period. If only I would go a little later, it would be much easier. There are, more, there are thousands of records, but I'm obsessed with this beginning where there isn't a beginning, where you, you know, as, as you rightly pointed out, you can't say that it's colonialism yet. And so it's not an answer to the luxury question, but what I want to say is that, um, you know, luxury is a very dangerous, I mean, unless it becomes part of middle class consumption, the whole idea of it being really symptomatic of an entire system or an economy is really dangerous. So then it will have to stay to that. But gender and luxury is where I think we need to go next because if there's anything in original in what I have done right now, it's the women. I mean, no art historian has talked about the women. Uh, this is all old territory for South Asianists, but none of them talk about women as producing these paintings, as consuming these stuff, mm -hmm. nothing. Um, so, okay, it's a long debate. I think Mini should answer that question. No, <laughs> is what I think. But no, not maybe, but no. And I'll I'll give you my reasons. And I'm not a historian of South Asia. I was trained to do Europe, um, and that's part of the problem. You know, I'm venturing. I'm trying to do this kind of comparative work. Is, um, but you know, this is a hot topic in India right now because with the right, rise of the Hindu right, that is exactly the argument made that the Mughals were foreigners, Muslims who came and conquered and we are indigenously a Hindu people. Well, for several reasons it can't be, no, how do we define colonialism? And we, if you're interested in European colonialism, it would be the expropriation of uh, goods and capital to enrich some other territory to the detriment of this territory, but that did not happen. The Mughals came and settled in India. They didn't carry things out of India. Nothing left. It wasn't, it's not as if they had seats of power somewhere else uh, and they intermarried. Half the population or whatever, the Muslims, they were, they were all converts. You know, a handful of people came and the rest of the Muslims are local converts. So nothing is going out somewhere. It's not as if they have allegiance to the Turkish court or some other court somewhere. So by any, however we define colonialism, at least in my understanding, I cannot think of this as colonial rule in any way. Uh, because also, despite, you know, there's not only inter, and now yes, it's true that it's imperial. 
in a local way, but it's imperial in the way, in an older way, that they incorporate or they seek to incorporate uh, Hindu uh, emperors and Hindu uh, kingdoms into their empire. But the way that happens is by marrying somebody's daughter or if you defeat, in war, you know, it's an older system of alliances between various kings. Yeah. I mean, Hindu emperors were exploiting the ordinary people. And when Akbar marries the daughter of a Hindu king, they're in alliance. They're, you know, they're not, they're not saying, hey, foreigner, get out or whatever. Uh, they're not perceived as foreign. So it, um, yeah. But it's not a question even of race or foreign or religion. It's a question of where the wealth is going, ultimately. I mean, these are deeply feudal regimes. So it's not an egalitarian role. It's an empire. It's called the Mughal Empire. So I'm not saying it's not an empire. But they're not, in, they're not empire in the sense that the British would be uh, an empire in terms of, uh, in relation to India. The British don't live in India and contribute to Indian wealth. And we see what happens to the Indian economy uh, within a century. So um. these are all, Mug um, how did the originals go, you mean? Because I've shown you only Mughal things. All of these are Mughal, not. Um, I don't know. We'll have to trace each painting. We know for some. We don't know for all. A lot of them, the likelihood is uh, anything Italian. I mean, they, as I said, if, if even the Persian king is giving European pictures, there could be all kinds of uh, ways in which they came. But the religious pictures, I want to say, almost certainly came with the Jesuits, the three embassies. Uh, originally. Then what happened with Akbar was, I mean, these were, these were why they were empires. They kept uh, them resident in court and had them train their own painters, a lot of them. So, uh, you know, and we don't know whether some other, uh, the Portuguese, somebody else might have brought it, the fathers might have bought it from them. Many of the paintings were brought to Goa and then brought, you know, to Delhi. So there's a lot of work on, lot of Ebakoch and Bailey have done a lot of work on some paintings. But see, many of the paintings I've used, as I said, they were lying in, I mean, they're Mughal paintings firstly. What they're based on, I don't know. I didn't even know they existed uh, till, you know, recently. And there's so many. We cannot possibly see, I mean, the Freer Gallery, the Smithsonian, they're full of roomfuls, the Victoria and Albert Museum, the British Museum. So really what we are talking about is several hundred thousand paintings, you know, uh, I mean, really. So uh, I go to Hyderabad, you go to the Nizam's palace, you see these paintings. I began to feel, you know, first I get very excited and write off to curators and all. And then I realized that this is an endless task. It would be um, fascinating to have a few case studies perhaps. There are. Uh, there are. I can, I mean, there's a fantastic work done on this uh, by art historians. But they're not interested in these questions of gender or colonialism. It's amazing, you know, they just aren't. So um, there we are. Yeah. Well, those aren't. I mean, other. And Garvin Alexander Bailey is an exception, or Eba Koch is an exception. Eba Koch works actually on buildings. So she goes beyond paintings to see the architecture, the Pietra Dura, which came from you know, all of Taj Mahal and all of the stuff. You know, is, so it's the style of architecture in India changes forever with that. Uh, so thank you. A lovely audience. Thank you.